is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series, where we brought you stories ranging from the life of Mario Andretti to the sharks in Shark Tank. And by the way, this American Dreamers combines two of our favorite subjects. One, the American Dream, and two, music. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of an American Dreamer who wasn't born in America. James Hilton wrote, If by some dispensation a man born deaf were to be given hearing for a single hour, he might well spend the whole time with Horowitz. challenged but never dethroned monarch of the piano keyboard has been Vladimir Horvitz. When he arrived in America in 1928, his brilliance dazzled amid a firmament of pianistic giants, which included Hoffman and Rachmaninoff. The wizard from Kiev roared over the keys with such precision and speed he caused the experts to doubt their ears. When Horvitz played in Paris in the 20s, the gendarme had to be called to restrain an insatiable audience which had begun to tear up the furniture. Now, 50 years later and thousands of appearances later, fans still queue in the streets for days in the hope of hearing the wizard at work. The results are always the same, an emotionally exhausted audience yelling for more and critics looking for new adjectives. Vladimir Horovitz's consummate skill, scholarship and demonic fervor have made him the most fascinating and admired pianist in history. No pianist anywhere surpasses him in drawing power and his fees are the highest in the land. You tell me one other solo performer in classical music who gets 80% of the gross, which is what Vladimir Horowitz gets. But I didn't do it my whole life. After 50 years playing, I got this. You get three times as much as any other classical performer today, I am told. And you smile when I tell you that because you know it's the truth and you're proud. I'm not proud, but it is so. And he didn't even want to be a pianist. Not as a career. He wanted to be something else. And felt this desire all the way up to his death. Despite being the most famous pianist of the 20th century. And one of the greatest in human history. You know, I must tell you something. In, in some way, all we sit in here, some... Every one of us has some kind of a little frustration. Everyone. Where in one way we're happy, in another way we're unhappy. That's the human being is, is born like that. I have my own. You, you think I have everything now. Oh, he's the greatest in the world. He's making money. He's traveling. But I wanted to be a composer. A composer. A dream of a young boy from Kiev, the present capital of Ukraine, but then a part of Russia, and a dream that was robbed from him 
by one of the most infamous revolutions. And then we had the little revolution. <laughs> he laughs because otherwise he'd have to cry. The Russian Revolution was led by communist Vladimir Lenin, who would go on to kill four million of his countrymen through executions, death camps, and state-caused famine. I'm from well-to-do family, you see. My father was a very important engineer. And because of that, their Jewish heritage was ignored. Unlike most Jews who were forced to relocate to what was called the Pale of Settlement that was in Western Russia. But when the revolution came, his father's great success was no longer his greatest asset. It became his greatest liability. He lost everything. The communists took it all. Vladimir Horowitz later recounted, My family lost everything in 24 hours. I saw with my own eyes how they threw our piano from the window. He was a teenager, suddenly without anything, and he did something about it. I started to give concerts, said that they gave me my education, now I have to give them back something too. And so I played till today. Those concerts would immediately help out his family, whereas composing wouldn't. And so away it went. So in a way, I'm a frustrated composer. And for many of his first concerts, the compensation was rather antiquated. Being paid in bread, butter, and chocolate, the so-called revolution was more like a devolution. It caused the value of the ruble, the Russian currency, to collapse, bringing Russians back to the relic of history known as bartering, trading one good earth service for another. But that didn't stop Vladimir. In the 1922-23 music season, he was especially active. 23 recitals with 11 programs. It's amazing. A one-year repertoire that's virtually unheard of, mastering 11 different programs to take to the public. And he was 19. This is Our American Stories. The story of Vladimir Horowitz, our American Dreamer segment. It'll continue after these commercial messages. And to see and hear all of our American Dreamer segments, Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. So many good ones are there. My favorite, again, that Mario Andretti hour. You can't believe what you'll hear there. What a life. And what a life you're about to hear. Again, Vladimir Horowitz's life, American Dreamers. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we return with the American Dreamer's story of Vladimir Horowitz, who at this point is still a young man in Russia and being subjected to the evils of Lenin's communism. And in 1925, Vladimir requested and received a student visa to study with the renowned pianist Arthur Schnabel in Berlin. At least, that's what he told the Soviet government he would do. And I smuggled some dollars. I remember I put it in the shoes and I started my career in Europe with my own money. He would never become a student. And yet... The Soviets selected him to represent Ukraine in an international piano competition. And he responded, no, thank you. I like the West here just a little bit better. I think I'll stay here. And in fact, he so desired the West over Russia that when he ventured over to America, it loomed over the entirety of his debut in our country at Carnegie Hall on January 12th, 1928. My debut with Tchaikovsky concerto, which I choose to play, I knew that I can make such a wild sound and such a speed and such a noise and such a things that the public will be completely crazy. <laughs> and I wanted to do it, but subconsciously, it was in order to have success not to return to my country. I wanted to get success in the whole world, just not to get back. Because there I had my success. If I would not have success in Europe and America, I had to go back. He didn't have to go back. And for the rest of his life, made these United States his home. It was a debut unlike any other. The New York Times reported that the piano smoked at the keys. And that during most of the intermission, the audience continued to applaud and to call the pianist back to the stage. The New York Times reporter Olin Downs continued, describing the reception as the wildest welcome a pianist has received in many seasons in New York, and describing the performance as a whirlwind of virtuoso interpretation, amazing technique, irresistible youth, electrifying temperament, a tornado unleashed from the steps. Lieberson wrote, with a generosity not always typical of performing artists, a great pianist friend of mine said to me concerning the recent debut of a certain pianist, debut, debut, there has been no debut since that of Vladimir Horowitz, that was a debut. My manager at that time, he gave order that in intermission, nobody should come to the artist because it will disturb me and things like that, just to be completely quiet and um, not to talk and so on and so on. So it means intermission, my manager said that nobody should come. But then he said that, listen, there is one man absolutely crazy. He's a company, a company of, I don't know, some symphonies or violinists, and his name is so and so on. He wants to come just for three seconds just to kiss you because he said that he never heard anything like that. 
So I said, for three seconds, all right, kiss me, that, that's fine. So I remember I'm lying on the couch and resting a little bit before second half was very difficult. He's calling them, Vladimir, that was something absolutely incredible. We never heard the all audition to and please go your own way. Don't listen what the other people tell. Because for instance, I heard Hoffman who said that second ballad was not completely right. And Rachmaninoff didn't like the fourth ballad so much. And he thought, but don't listen to them. You just go your own way. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget that. <laughs> Don't listen to them. Just go your own way. You know? <laughs> Vladimir Horowitz would go his own way, and with almost everything in life. For instance, he would only play his Steinway piano. If I don't have a green instrument, I cannot do it. That's why I go with my own piano when I travel, not to have surprises, to have a piano which I don't know. He trekked his piano to every single one of his concerts, even if it was across the country in San Francisco or across that little ocean all the way over to Paris. One of the only pianists to ever go to such lengths. This time you have something like 10 and 11,000 parts. The most important, you have to take care of piano like you take care of yourself. It's like a human organism. You have to check it every month from humidity to cold to think. Everything changes. You have to have a voicing man who comes. And then where do you have the small city? You don't have it. And the, the man from here cannot go everywhere and check it. You know, so it has to be regulated all the time, the piano. So that's why I have my own piano. Here's Gino Francisconi, the Archives and Museum Director of Carnegie Hall, on how it was like on the other end, being a venue handling Horowitz's piano demands. When Horowitz would come, he would bring his own Steinway piano from home, and he would drive our stagehands a little crazy by asking them to move the piano around the stage. And the stagehands noticed every time he said, I'm happy, where it is, it was almost pretty much in the same spot. And so what one of the stagehands decided to do was to put three nails to designate the three different legs of the piano so that the next time they wouldn't have to go through this. So Horowitz would arrive and he would do the same thing. No, I'm not happy with it here. And he would have the stagehands move the piano around the stage until he said, yes, I'm happy with it here and it was always over the nails. So remarkably precise and willing to go his own way with his preciseness that Horowitz insisted his concerts be at 4 p.m. on Sunday. Not on a weekday, not on a Saturday, or an evening as is often done. 4 p.m. on Sunday, and that is it. We're living in very strange times. There is lots of pressure lots of tension on everybody. The traffic is very, lots of noise, you know, the distance are great. And um, usually the man is working 
And the woman is in the house a little bit of the hammock, but she has lots of work now too. It's not so leisurely. So in the evening, I think people are less relaxed and more tired. When the husband comes at 6.30, 7 o'clock, sometime from the office, that tired, and the concert starts in one hour, so, so you, mm, Bob, Bob, you know, dress, dress, fast, 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 take your showers, and dinner, like that. we have to go, we miss, you know, he has no time even to breathe. He goes to the concert and he rests and goes, he goes to sleep, you know, <laughs> it makes no difference what you play. It's too tired, you know, you have to be relaxed, because you, a concert is a give and take. If you don't concentrate the listener, then the performer cannot do anything very much too. And you think today they'll concentrate better in the afternoon? I think in the afternoon they're more relaxed because it's a Sunday. They have nothing to do when they go to church, but that's not so, you know, taxing. They come back, three, four o'clock, they are much more relaxed. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, it's the same thing. I hate to wait the whole day the concert. The day become for me too long. But that 8.30 in the evening, you know, and then you finish the concert at 11 and the nerves are wind up and you don't sleep well, and th things like that. At 6, everything is finished. You have your friends after that and bank at 11, it's all forgotten and you sleep like a baby and it's finished, you know, too. And the mind, I think afternoon, we are in our best, you know, all of us. This is Our American Stories, Vladimir Horowitz, his story, part of our American Dreamers series. More after these messages, and again, go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch all of our American Dreamers. Go to Topics, pull down the menu, and everything we do here on this show is organized there. Again, Vladimir Horowitz, an American Dreamer story as good as it gets. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and let's continue with our American Dreamer's story of Vladimir Horowitz, the greatest pianist of the 20th century and one of the greatest in human history. My father-in-law said that the, the, all the geniuses, they cannot be geniuses 24 hours. We have, <laughs> we, have, we have very weak works of Beethoven and Mozart too, you know. <laughs> and being a genius, his practice wasn't like how most would practice, but perhaps should be. You see, I believe that if you practice too long time, and you repeat mechanically, difficult, places of music, you know, which are not in hand and you want to make it clear that every finger is given. If you repeat it all the time and finally you do it, 
it becomes mechanical and you repeat hundred times at home and you go on the stage you repeat it on the first time it becomes mechanical so I believe and I like brushing the teeth you know I believe to to do it every day but not too long I don't practice more than one hour and a half never to but I never miss a day you do never miss a day I'm on the stage, I'm one person. When I'm out of the stage, I'm another person. When you're See, on the when stage... When I'm on the stage, I feel I'm a king. I'm a king. On the stage? Yes, nobody has to interfere with him because I have something to do and I have to bring the best which is in me. Sometimes I do it better, sometimes less good like any human being. You see, for me, the success is silence, not the applause. After a work? No, during the during play. When it's silent, that means they are taking. No coughing. No coughing, and they hold the coughing even if they die. You know, <laughs> because they are taken by the emotional impact. People were literally breathless. Here Vladimir Horowitz is with a radio interviewer in 1975 on the role of the performer. In other words, a, a man can't say, a performer can't say that he really does not let any of himself come through, that he well, is just... You, you, he has to. He is the, he is the liaison, uh, is French mm-hmm. word, middleman between the composer and the public. Yeah. He, he is interpreting the law. Interpreting the law. I am the lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And to interpret a piece, you first try to get inside the mind of the composer. So how did Horowitz do that? I don't like to read anything about somebody. I like to read their own letters and their own opinions. And I read very little in books about it because there's so much garbage about me, terrific amount of exploitation, you know, not true. Here's Horowitz on one of his all-time favorite letters by the famous Polish composer Frederick Chopin. You see, Chopin in his letter he was teaching, and he tells when somebody of my pupils comes and wants to and play some work of my own and wants to imitate my own playing, I send him home because I want him to bring something that I don't know myself. It should be different because I myself never played twice the same way. Never. That is a Chopin letter. So I can say the same thing. I'm not Chopin, but I can say the same thing. I never play twice the same way. Never. I know that people who travel with me heard that same humoresque with you talking. I play five times completely different. So I would like what I'm doing that, but I will say, no, I would not play like that today. Or this part I will play differently. This part is good, this part not. This, I don't know. It's not subconsciously, it's, it's, what you call subconsciously, I call it intuition. 
Horowitz adopted Chopin's philosophy. The composer's score and their letters were a reference point, but that is it, he declared. Because the score is not a Bible, I am never afraid to dare. The music is behind those dots. You search for it, and that is what I mean by the grand manner. I play, so to speak, from the other side of the score, looking back. His most famous interpretation is one he eventually stopped playing entirely. He was on to the next risk, and he would never take the greatest risk of them all, becoming stale as a performer. So he was always moving on, but this decision did not stop the popular demand for him to play it. Just take one example. Here's CBS's Mike Wallace in 1977 trying to goad it out of him in a television interview. You love this country. I love this country. Do you love this country enough, Maestro, to respond to a request for you to play something that you haven't played in many, many years in public. Yeah, but I don't know it. I, I, I you know what I'm going to ask you? Yes, I know, because they ask me all the time. The Stars and Stripes Forever. You, you played that back in 1945. On the I Am an American Day. That's right. Central Park. I like this much, but it's very hackneyed and badly played by the band. Because they played three times as fast. Because, you know, Military march is a walking march. Yes. But you cannot play. You don't walk like that. You also don't walk like that. They completely spoil the thing because it's much more classic than it is. Are you enough of a patriot? No, I forgot that. I didn't play for. I didn't play twenty. I tell you, I don't know it. But I have to remember, it's so difficult. I, I, I'm sure that it's difficult. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. At the end? Go on. Go on from Maestro, has it been 20 years? 30. 30 years since you've played that. A long time in a long career of 67 years, but one that had many long interruptions. He retired from 36 to 39, and then 52 to 65, 12 years away from the stage, and then 69 to 74. Now that's 22 years together. That kind of retirement creates a mystique in itself, doesn't it? And he took advantage of it very cleverly. Here's one example of its effect. He said when he came to Toronto in 1975 that it was as if a ghost was visiting your city. And no wonder, given the rumors that whirled around this ghost. And after the break, we'll hear what those rumors were and why Horowitz hid himself from the public for so many years. This is Our American Stories, Vladimir Horowitz's story in our American Dreamer series. 
More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of Our American Dreamer's story on Vladimir Horowitz, the greatest pianist of the 20th century, but whose life wasn't always so great and included some very long absences from the public. Here Horowitz is again with CBS's Mike Wallace. And then the rumors began. And then the rumors began. I mean, he can't, your house. He's, yeah. a, he's institutionalized. He's afraid of the piano. Listen, Horowitz has gone mad. Listen, in those 10 years, I did six, seven records. How can I get mad if I made the recording? <laughs> no. But how did the rumors start? You see, the America likes bad news. They don't like good news. <laughs> the headlines are always bad news. You sell the paper. <laughs> if it's a good news, you don't sell the paper. Vladimir Horowitz did battle depression throughout his career, receiving electroshock treatment for it and stating that it was the reason for his longest absence of 12 years, in addition to the demands of touring getting to him. Here's more of Mike Wallace with Horowitz, this time along with his wife, Wanda. In the 12 years that he didn't play. Yeah. In the 12 years yeah. from 1953 to 65. Well, I was in this room very happy. You were in this room very happy. Very happy. And you, madame? Not so happy. But you stayed here. Oh, yes, I did. You know what happened when he played finally in 1965? What? He came out and it was a big line of people on both sides of Carnegie Hall. And somebody said, oh, Mr. Horowitz, we stood in line all night. And I said, you know what? I stood in line for 12 years. Uh-huh. It must have been a difficult 12 years for you. Yeah, because you see, from time to time you would say, I will never play again. I said, fine, very fine. And my heart was singing to my feet. But I would say, fine, fine. If the you only thing I was doing the records, as I told you before. Yes, you keep saying you were doing the records. But the that, fact is, you did not face the public for 12 years. Yeah. Yes, it's And on one occasion, I'm told, you didn't leave the house for two years, and you almost never left his side. For six months, I never went out of his house, the first six months. Two years for him, and six months for her, within the same four walls. Leonard Bernstein, the famed American composer, 
who wrote the music for West Side Story and Peter Pan, wrote this in a letter to Wanda Horowitz upon Vladimir's passing. Quote, I send you loving sympathy, but let me add my admiration for you in your long years of devotion to this amazing man. He was not only a super pianist, but a super musician with all the mental fallibilities such geniuses have. You cared for him and guarded him through a series of neurotic crises the world may never know nor understand, and you returned him to us time and again, refreshed, renewed, and ever greater. Including the very last time, in 1985, Vladimir returned from a two-year absence for what would be his final four years on this earth, and many of the critics, like the New York Times' Harold Schoenberg, called them his best musical years. And in 1986, in the wake of the Soviet Union's increasing liberalization, he announced a return tour to his homeland for performances in Moscow and Leningrad, his first time back since 1925 to the communist-controlled society that had taken everything from his family and that he vowed never to visit again. I didn't see my, my family for six years. I don't know how they look, how they are. When I left Russia, my niece was nine years old, now 70. His niece met him at his Moscow performance, along with this arousing crowd. The New York Times reported that Horowitz worried his eccentric style might be unwelcome in the bland communist society of forced uniformity. Maybe my playing will seem strange to these people, he said. Maybe I am too romantic. Now, Horowitz might have been right about those government officials, but he was certainly wrong about his people. And then I spent all the night here because I wanted to get the ticket by all means, but afraid to miss it. From my childhood, it was my dream to hear Horowitz in life. I have got many records, and now my dream will come true. The Times reported of the Moscow performance that many in the audience cried unabashedly during portions of the recital, bringing him back on stage for six curtain calls after he had played three encores. Mr. Horowitz became something of a sensation in a city unaccustomed to his kind of flamboyance. And just three months later, then-President Ronald Reagan welcomed him back to America in a White house ceremony to award him the presidential medal of freedom his adopted nation's highest civil award it's good to have you back with us in the united states you know the meetings between artists and politicians are fraught with peril there's the story of ulysses s grant who said i know only two tunes one of them is yankee doodle and the other isn't. <laughs> well, not all politicians are like that. Not all. I think next time I have a distinguished gathering here in this room, I'm going to have to paraphrase Jack Kennedy's line and say that this is the greatest accumulation of talent in this one room 
since the time I greeted Vladimir Horowitz alone. <laughs> I must say it's an honor to play host to the man who, as one British critic put it, is simply the greatest pianist, dead or alive. I also like the story of Sir Thomas Beecham and jokingly criticized, who jokingly criticized your performance at the concerto saying, really, Mr. Horowitz, you can't play like that. <laughs> he said, it shows the orchestra up. <laughs> but considered by piano connoisseurs the most dazzling virtuoso since Liszt set the standard in the 19th century, you have influenced countless young pianists and inspired multitudes of listeners. I hope so. <laughs> I'm glad that this is such a small, intimate gathering because what I really wanted was the chance to thank you personally for being our emissary of goodwill to the people of the Soviet Union. Thank you very much. It's appropriate that we're together in the Roosevelt Room, because behind us here on the mantle is the first Nobel Peace Prize ever awarded to an American. It was given to Teddy Roosevelt for his part in negotiating an end to the Russo-Japanese War. A little known fact, but significant today because your recent journey to the Soviet Union was also a pilgrimage of peace. You said in an interview that your hope was to set out the good, to make the good better, and you did just that. Your music spoke to the heart of the land where you were born, and it spoke to all of our hearts, and in the beautiful moments, you reminded all of us of our common humanity. You brought us closer, as people to people, as the American people and the people who live in the Soviet Union. You were our ambassador of the heart. And for that, I want to thank you both for myself and for all of America. For our American stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job as always, Alex. That may be one of my favorites. I love what Reagan said there at the end. You brought us all closer. And I think that's what art does. And that's why we spend so much time here on Our American Stories talking about it. It brings people of different faiths, different ethnicities, races, class sexual orientation. It brings men and women, everyone together. And that also, that thread of genius and insanity or genius and mental problems and genius and pain. I mean, shutting himself in for two years. There's something about being an artist, perhaps being blessed with these prodigious talents that also has a downside. We We've told so many stories here on this show of great artists who end up committing suicide, having drug problems. We're going to be doing an hour on Ernest Hemingway. And my goodness, the demons, the genius. You couldn't separate one from the other. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The story of Vladimir Horowitz. Our American Dreamer segments can also be found on OurAmericanNetwork.org. And there are so many of them. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Go to the Topic section. And there are the American Dreamers segments. And there are all of our music segments and our Story of a Song segments. 
Vladimir Horowitz, Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we love to dip into Shark Tank because it's a great show and it's about everything we love about America. Free enterprise, starting businesses, winning, losing. Well, Stephen Chen is in the Shark Tank in this segment, dog by his side with his product called Pet Gnostics. Hi, my name is Stephen Chen. This here is Austin. I am the founder of Petnostics, and I'm here today seeking $300,000 in exchange for 10% of my company. Wow. What is Petnostics? We all love our pets like our children, and it's important to monitor their health regularly. Unlike children, though, our pets cannot talk to us, and that's why I started Petnostics. Petnostics allows you to check your pet's health instantly by analyzing your dog or cat's urine with your smartphone. So let's pretend that this blue liquid is Austin's urine. So here we have Austin's sample in the Petnostics cup, which has a special lid that's integrated with the same chemical test strips that vets use in their clinics. Once you get your pet's urine in our cup, simply screw on the lid and flip the cup over. These test pads will then change colors depending on your pet's health, and our app will scan the cup and analyze the color changes, telling you about possible health issues. Gross. (laughs) So it comes down to sample time. And guest shark Ashton Kutcher has an obvious question. How do you collect the dog pee? Austin and I would like to know if urine. Urine? Oh, Oh, no. Um, I have samples here for you today, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. the cutest dog. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Steve, can I ask you a question? Yes, How do you capture the urine sample? (laughs) It's a good question. Very good question. So pet parents know that pets relieve themselves on schedule. So for me and Austin, when I'm walking him, I know when he's about to pee, I just get the cup behind him, and I'm able to get the sample that way. (laughs) You (laughs) have to step the cup (laughs) under your dog and letting your dog (laughs) piss in your hand and the cup to capture the sample. They give you a glove. (laughs) For pet parents that have a little bit more trouble collecting the urine, we have the... Petnostics urine collector. <laughs> it's a little ladle with an extendable handle. And so like a for stick. female dogs, or yeah, you, and so when Austin, if, if there's a female dog and they um, squat, you can just kind of you know get underneath there oh. and get the urine that way. How much do you actually need to capture for you the diagnostics a, to work? Just a little teeny bit, yeah, for the strips to change color. Oh, that's so good. Well, you know, from this mirthful moment, 
Mr. Wonderful, well, he wants to get down to business. What does it cost the consumer to do all this stuff and get all the paraphernalia for pea collection? We retail the cups for $10. What no, does yeah, it cost you? It costs me $2 right now to make one of these. How low do you think you can get it at volume? Um, we think we can get our cost down to about 90 cents. It's a one-time lab, right? It's a one-time use cup. Okay. Right. How many cups have you sold it to how many customers? So cups, we've sold about 10,000 cups. What? Well, in what period of time? When did you start? We started in April 2014. How have you sold them? So we've sold right now just through our website and through local retail stores in Southern California. It's very impressive. And so the leading vets, they liken our product to a check engine light. You know, see, oh, if there's something wrong potentially under the hood, then you still have to have the expert, the vet, take care of it. Well, before anyone hears sales numbers, Robert, jump ship. I'm not sold on the business model. Vets want to make more money, not less money. Mm-hmm. I believe in this product, but I also have to really believe in a very clear distribution channel. Mm-hmm. I think you're early. Okay. I'm out. Okay. Thank you. Steven gives us his sales projections. Mr. Wonderful smells weakness. Or P. We're projecting $200,000 in sales this Okay, year. so... You're not making any money yet. So next year, we're projecting hopefully $400,000 in sales with these new specific disease tests. That's, that market makes up 590 million um, tests that potentially can be done. But it's not clear yet, Stephen, what the go-to-market distribution strategy is. We're talking about vets, direct sales online, maybe retail if you can find enough margin. Mm-hmm. That's not clear yet. These are all to be determined, right? Yes. There's a bit of risk in your deal in terms of what's going to happen. You're a little pre-revenue-ish. Mm-hmm. You know, what I love about Shark Tank deals is when it's already proven what the channel is going to work, I pour $300,000 on it, it's just like gasoline on fire, it explodes. You're not there yet. Okay. Ouch. Mark Cuban is out. Here's why. I'm very involved on the human side. I've got investments in a company called Biomain that does blood um, analysis. My point is that being strip-driven, I think, will have a, a, a life cycle. I just don't see it as a long-term life cycle. I see that as a problem. I'm out. Okay. Thank you. Ouch. Well, what about Ashton? He doesn't want to get his hands wet. My biggest concern is still around the very first question that we had around collection. I think that you're going to be disrupted by a bunch of other platforms that can do the same thing that you do without the messiness of having to do a urine sample. (laughs) And so for that reason, I'm out. Thank you. We all know that Mr. Wonderful isn't afraid to get a little dog urine on his hands (laughs) if there's a profit to be made. Well, here's what he has to offer. I'm more concerned about distribution risk, how you blow this thing out so you sell a few million dollars of it. (laughs) I want to reflect that in my offer. I'll do the 300,000 for 15%. Interesting. Wow. You know, Kevin, I've watched the show a lot. Your deals always have ratchets, levers. You have some loyalty, <laughs> some plug-in. No, I'm hooking, really good at that. I'm the most creative shark instructor. Mark's learning from me all the time. You can call it creative. I'll learn you what not to do. I call it, I call it founder abuse, but you yeah. call it creative. I, I, I'm really curious about why you're offering a straight equity deal on this. I do them occasionally, but I think this is a play on trying to figure out which channel works and then pouring gasoline on it. QVC Queen Lori has an offer of her own. I've sold a lot of products over the last 18 years, and I have seen so many people spend so much on their pets, and they want to make sure that they're okay. I'm going to make you an offer. 300000 for 20%. Well, between Kevin and Lori, who will get this deal? Would you consider 300000 for 15%? Ooh, equaling Kevin's offer, Lori. 
I feel at 15%, you know, as much as I really do love this and I think it's a great product and my Queen, come here for a second. Be, the king is speaking. Uh, if you want to split the deal, I'll do 50-50 for 20%. 20%? This is, this is because you didn't move fast enough in some ways. 20%. 50-50, king and queen. Why you have 15? Queen and joker. It's the only offer on the table now. I'm in. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good presence. And I get the dog. Thank you so much. Good idea. Thank you so much. And another great shake shark. Shark tank, not shake tank. And we got to take a potty break. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and recently our producer, Jesse, visited an air show. You really don't need much more of an explanation than that. Take it away, Jesse. There aren't many events quite as all-American as a good old-fashioned American air show. The 4th of July is pretty kick-ass, mostly because it's the only holiday where there are no gifts to exchange, and the only things you spend money on are consumed, inhaled, or blown up. But at an air show, an air show is a celebration of the greatest machines that God gave man the inspiration to create. Oh, crap. We're at the Memphis Air Show. The year? Not important. Because like an all-American air show, our American stories are timeless. Like a shining city on the hill, a last bastion of linguistic and intellectual freedom in an age of conformity and cynicism. I'm, I'm sorry, it's the music mixed with the smell of jet fuel. It always gets me a little excited. I picked the wrong week, quit sniffing blue. The U.S. Navy Blue Angels are here with their F-18 Hornets, along with a U.S. Air Force F-16 Viper demonstration, a jet-propelled semi-truck that reaches over 300 miles per hour while shooting out giant fireballs, a Navy SEAL skydiving team, a P-51 Mustang, a Corsair, a B-17 Flying Fortress, and several stunt pilots. We've also been told that somewhere on this airfield today will be the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill, also known as the world's largest Largest barbecue barbecue grill. grill. I've got to see this. I must eat off this grill. I will eat off of this grill. Because I'm a good boy. I am a good boy. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? Anyways, just when I thought the air show was about to begin... I was taken by surprise when... Welcome the Canadians, ladies and gentlemen. I would ask that you all rise now and remove your caps and join them in the Canadian National Anthem. The Canadian National what? The Canadian National Anthem. We're in the company of the Canadian Forces Snowbirds Demonstration Jet Team and the Canadian Forces CF-18 Hornet Demo Team as well. All right, so we're sitting on this old Navy airfield just north of Memphis. And there before me were Americans standing at attention as the Canadian National Anthem was played. That was a first. A tip of the hat to America's hat. Our Canadian friends indeed. This particular air show season, the Canadian Forces Snowbirds Demonstration Jet Team will commemorate the 75th anniversary of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, the joint aircrew training program launched by Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand during World War II. 
Its contribution to the Second World War air effort and the Allied victory was an important chapter in Canada's history. Like the big jerk that I am, I forgot that this event might be cash only for things like food and beer. So I was standing in line at the ATM when our national anthem began to play. So I turned my back to the ATM and stood at attention with everyone else. Now, normally I wouldn't be talking over our national anthem, but in this case, uh, for production purposes, I, I need to. But forgive me. To be fair, there were Navy SEAL skydivers falling from the sky with a giant American flag while this girl was singing... So it's not like there weren't any distractions. I feel like I'm explaining this a bit too much, but you get the point. The air show is now underway with a stunt pilot right out of the gate. Just listen to the sound of that engine, the sound of the announcer and the crowd. If that's not one of the ultimate sounds of summertime in America, I don't know what is. You can almost smell those hot dogs cooking in the background, can't you? That reminds me, the world's largest barbecue grill is somewhere out here. I should go look for it. But uh, first things first, I finally got some cash, so I'm heading over to the beer tent. It's 11 a.m., but who cares? I'm at an air show, and this is America, damn it. And uh, don't judge me by my beer choice. It was either Budweiser or, like, Michelob Ultra, so I had to make a choice. There were no micro-brews or IPAs to choose from, but I'm not complaining. And then there it was. The world's largest barbecue, the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. It's big, and it is beautiful. Just look at it. Well, you can't because I'm the idiot who records audio at an air show. Just imagine a grill the size of a semi-trailer, because it is a semi-trailer. This massive grill is literally pulled around behind a semi-truck all over the country. The Big Taste Grill is 20 feet tall, a whopping 65 feet long, and 6 feet in diameter. Just to park this thing, you need a space that is 20 by 90 feet. Let's head over to talk to someone and ask for free food. What was your name? Susie. Susie. Yeah. Why can you tell me about this grill? Well, um, this grill is 65 feet long. It is the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. It's the world's largest traveling grill. We can do 750 brats at once, so in an hour we can do 2,500 brats. Wow. Um, the lid alone on this weighs over 5,000 pounds. The whole grill weighs over 53,000 pounds. Wow. That's crazy. Do you guys just go from uh, air show to air show, or do you take other events? And... We, um, we do other events. We are out on the road for eight months, and this is our 23rd year out on the road with this big Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. 23 so, years. 23 years. Uh, we do NASCAR races, Monday Night Football games. We do air shows, country music festivals. We also do like grand openings at grocery stores. We do corporate lunches. Um, so we get to meet a lot of people and get to promote Johnsonville products. Nice. So how long have you been with the company? Um, this is my second year with Johnsonville. Oh. And... Oh, wow. 
Uh, just in case you forgot, we're in an air show, and that was an F-16 that just flew over. You can hear from my reaction that I was dumbstruck, mouth agape, laughing like a little schoolgirl because an airplane just flew over. Back to Susie with the world's largest traveling barbecue grill. Um, so this is the 23rd season out, and I am the first woman grill master in 23 years. Wow, grill master. How do you get that title? Well, I think a lot of it comes from me living in uh, in Wisconsin, and I was raised on Johnsonville products all my life. So, And I just I love meeting people and spreading the Johnsonville joy. Nice. You guys just cook on this thing all day long? Or? Yes. So, um, can I get a free sample? You can get a free sample. Nice. We'll get you hooked up with one, definitely. <laughs> right. um, another big thing with us is when we travel, every event we're at, we uh, have a local charity come and work with us, and then they get part of the proceeds. So this is the 23rd season out, like I said, and Johnsonville has donated over $4 million to charities all over the U.S. I saw some, you guys had some dancers out here earlier. Who, who are they? So this weekend's charity is the Millington Central High School Cheerleaders. So the whole crew is out here. They're doing some really cool cheers that actually have... They have put Johnsonville and the word bratwurst in these cheers, and they're out here cheering and having a good time, and they're working. Um, the proceeds that they raised this weekend will go towards new uniforms for them. <laughs> that never gets old. <laughs> <laughs> it's sound. It is, isn't it? <laughs> well, can you tell us about Johnsonville? Do you anything about the, the company, the, the history? Yes. So it is all family-owned. Um, this is their 71st year of making sausage, and they actually ventured out into doing fully flame-grilled chicken breasts as well now. So they're brand new. They just came out this spring. Um, if you ever get to see any of our new commercials on TV, they are all employee, employees' ideas. So that's pretty cool. Um, they're... Yes, very tricky, very, very noisy, but it is spectacular out here. And you have to admit, standing on top of the Johnsonville Big Chase Grill, you get the most amazing view. Yeah, it's great. Let's see, what do we got going on down here? Um, Who are these so, girls? So these are the cheer some of the cheerleaders uh-huh. from the Millington Central High School. Hi! Hi! recap for just a second. We're at the Memphis Air Show, standing on the world's largest traveling barbecue grill, the Johnsonville Big Taste Grill. F-16s are flying overhead. I've got a beer in my hand. It's about 70 degrees outside, and I'm about to get free food. Oh, and there's cheerleaders. I'd say it's a pretty good day at the Memphis Air Show, to say the least. When we come back, we'll listen to the sounds of the P-51 Mustang and talk to its pilot. We'll also talk to some veterans about air shows, and we'll meet the U.S. Navy Blue Angels as we listen to the sounds of their incredible F-A-18 Hornet aircraft. This is Our American Stories.
And now we continue our day at the air show with our Gonzo producer, Jesse. We're at the Memphis Air Show, and you're listening to the sound of the P-51 Mustang. The P-51 Mustang is an American-made, long-range, single-seat fighter aircraft primarily engaged in service during World War II, designed and built by North American Aviation. The first Mustangs were used by the Royal Air Force as tactical reconnaissance aircraft and fighter bombers. The P-51 is powered by the Packard V-1650-7, a licensed-built version of the Rolls-Royce Merlin 60-series two-stage, two-speed supercharged engine. This engine made the aircraft capable of being used as a long-range bomber escort. During wartime, the aircraft was armed with six 50 caliber M2 Browning machine guns. This P-51 Mustang demonstration is flown by Scott Scooter Yoke, who, with his late father Bill, spent 13 years meticulously restoring the Quicksilver. Here's Scott Scooter Yoke, the pilot, sharing the details of this beautiful warplane with us. This is a uh, World War II fighter plane. It was designed to escort the bombers all the way to Berlin and back in the European theater, as well as the Pacific Islands. It escorted the B-29 bombers to Japan and back from Tinian. And uh, this aircraft was a 15-year restoration by myself and my father and our company. And this is what we do for a living, is fly these around and build them. A big difference with this, with this 51 and other 51s is uh, every marking and every insignia on this aircraft actually represents something. It wasn't just put on there for aesthetically pleasing designs or any of that other kind of stuff. Every, every piece of paint, every marking, every uh, bit of, bit of uh, design work on it stands for something and represents our, our veterans and those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. These are D-Day stripes, so these were to... Um, show the Allied forces who was good guys and who was bad guys. If you flew with these on June June 6, 1944, you were a good guy. If you didn't, it means you had to shoot it down because that's not that's not the it's uh, uh, not the guy that plays for your side. It was time to walk around a little bit to see what the crowd was like when I spotted an old timer wearing one of those U.S. Navy hats adorned with pins and buttons from the ships and campaigns he obviously had served in. While standing next to his wife, I asked him what these air shows mean to him. That's when we are the proudest, same like it. It's like a, we blossom our pride when we come to these shows. I've gone to them, I don't know, ever since I was in the Navy back in the 60s, you know. I'm a Vietnam and Korean veteran and... I saw them over there. They come over there and do the shows, you know. Yeah. And of course, we uh, got a place down at Dolphin Island. We watch them when we want to, just practice. The Blues practice down there about three times a week in Pensacola. Yeah. And we're close enough. We can go watch them practice in the morning, just like coming to the show. You could ask her. I wear her out. <laughs> <laughs> does, he wear, does he wear you out a little bit? Nah. No. No. <laughs> the shows. What's your name, sir? Luther Brackeen. Mr. Brackeen, thank you for your service, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. Old War vets like Mr. Luther Brackeen here were all over the air show. I also noticed some men and women sporting biker jackets, so I figured I should say hello. Turns out the group is the Combat Veterans Motorcycle Association. One of their members, Janet Murdoch, was kind enough to tell me how their organization operates. What it is is it's all vets helping vets. Everything that we raise goes back into the veterans. We are currently in the process of building the West Tennessee Veterans Home right out in Arlington, which is not far from this area. It will be for amputees, for our veterans coming back with neurological problems, and it's going to be a fabulous facility. 
We currently get back to the West Tennessee Veterans Home. We also have the cemetery, and we actually donate $1,500 to that every year directly to the local one. We don't just go to some website and say, okay, there's your money. No, we take it directly to them, and it helps for the maintenance of the cemetery. There are a lot of veterans to talk to at these air shows, and they like talking to people to share their story. While some veterans might hesitate to share a painful story, I've always found that a majority of veterans seem to find some amount of excitement to share where they've been or what they've seen. Just say hello to one of them. It'll make their day, and yours as well. This next guy, however, let's just say I don't think I made his day. So I saw him wiping down the underside of this parked B-17 Flying Fortress. Let me repeat that. I saw him, with my own eyes, wiping down the underside of the airplane. So I walk up to this guy. What do you think I ask him first? So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. Groundbreaking, cutting-edge journalism, right? Ask the man if he's doing what he's obviously doing. So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. And if that's not bad enough, you should hear my terrible follow-up question. So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, what, are you, what are you doing? Oh, man, this is so embarrassing. I've got to call myself out over this one. I see a guy wiping down a plane. I ask him if he's wiping down the plane. He confirms he's wiping down the plane, so then I ask him what he's doing. Again. So you're wiping down the plane there, huh? Oh, yeah. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Oh, it's terrible. All right, before I bother this guy any further, his name was Steve, by the way. He was piloting this B-17. I asked him what these air shows mean to him. I have to say more than anything... Getting to share the airplanes is the best part of it. You know, we can't hog these things. You know, they belong to everybody, in a sense. So, you know, we're fortunate in the fact that we get to fly them and maintain them and be directly involved with them. But, you know, the general public doesn't get that opportunity unless we bring the airplane to them and, and share it and show it to them. Yeah. They'll never really get a chance to see it. At least many of them won't. So I'd say that's probably number one, is just getting to share the airplane to so many people who don't know anything about it or their granddad was shot down in one or something like that and they heard the stories but they never never knew anything firsthand about it so i think that's the best part it's just just getting to share the airplane and now it was time for the main event the u.s navy blue angels The Blue Angels team was formed in 1946, and six demonstration pilots currently fly the McDonnell Douglas F.A. 18 Hornet, typically in more than 70 shows at 34 locations throughout the United States each year, where they still employ many of the same practices and techniques used in their aerial displays in their inaugural 1946 season. An estimated 11 million spectators view the squadron during their air shows each full year. Here's Blue Angel pilot Lieutenant Ryan Chamberlain walking us around his Blue Angels F-A-18 Hornet. Here is the uh, F-18 Hornet. There's all kinds of uh, various panels throughout, uh, throughout the, uh, the right and left side of the jet. One of the, the unique things about the Blue Angel jets is they have no weapon stations on them. So you see the missile rails. Right. There's actually two hard points on each wing. Uh, the cheek stations, uh, where you can kind of see that's cut out there, that's uh, also a, a missile station. And then there's a, an ability to have a drop tank in the middle. All of that stuff has been removed, and you see what you have in front of you, which is a nice, shiny blue and yellow airplane. And here's Blue Angels pilot Lieutenant Matt Satteroud when I asked him how he became a Blue Angel. Well, my, my dad was always interested in, in aviation. He didn't become a pilot, but he, he sort of fostered that interest in myself and my brother. And uh, we grew up seeing airplanes fly around and just 
uh, going to air shows and stuff in Hawaii and uh, met, we saw the Blue Angels when we were three for the first time and kind of sparked that interest. Uh, went to St. Louis University uh, to fly, uh, pursue an aviation career and decided after 9-11 that we really wanted to be in the military. So we watched these Blue Angels do what they do best, screaming through the sky with laser-like precision and these multi-million dollar war jets turned into a family-friendly spectacle of grand proportions. I could watch these guys fly all day long and never get bored. It's the sound, the smell, the sights, the people, the food, the patriotism, the shock and awe and wonder on the face of every child, grown-up and senior citizen alike when that F-16 splits open the sky above our heads. Oh, wow! <laughs> we all smile. And in this day and age of our safe and quiet and timid forms of family entertainment, it's awesome to get out and show the wife and kids what real power looks and feels like. These pilots are living out their dreams, and they're also risking their lives to entertain us in a very unusual way when you think about it. Watching airplanes for fun. I can't think of very many ways to spend a better afternoon. Can you? For Our American Stories at the Memphis Air Show... I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And remember, when you look up in the sky, not a single U.S. soldier has been killed by an enemy plane since 1952. So all of our men around the world protecting us on the ground, thanks to the American taxpayer and for all those pilots risking their lives. Our guys don't have to look up. They just have to look around. This is Our American Stories. our American stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here about love, about loss, about business, about risk-taking, history. And this one comes from a friend of Faith's, and she shares an important subject that is often avoided. Here is Mimi's story. It's always odd to talk about yourself. With you, you're sort of forced to take this perspective that seems arrogant if you say good things and self-deprecating and weak if you don't. And no one likes to feel weak or out of control. Growing up, I was raised by a mother who told me never to show weakness, that other people always deserve your best and nothing less. This is an excellent strategy for planning a cocktail party. And my mom is the queen of parties, ask anyone. (laughs) But not as effective for managing human emotions. Appearances were always kept up in my house, and I really tried to be this perfect, amazing, wonderful, in-control human. And in my house, that equated to being thin. I was a ballet dancer since I could walk. I pursued the career professionally and had many successes until I quit at age 19. I quit because the director of a very famous ballet company told me that although my technique was flawless, my artistry incomparable to anyone else my age, and I had a long, successful career ahead of me, I needed to lose at least 15 to 20 pounds. 
and my breasts were too large and distracting, I should consider getting them surgically reduced. And at that moment, 15 years of 40 hours a week or more of dancing, conditioning, crying, starving myself, throwing up until I had to get a root canal because of tooth decay were just thrown away. He only saw me as my weight and nothing else. And keep in mind that I was very, very thin at the time. Actually about 40 pounds thinner than I am right now. And right now I'm at a very healthy weight. Something inside me just broke. I felt like I was fighting to fit into the mold of the prima ballerina, ace bandaging my breasts down in tutus a la Hilary Swank and about a boy, starving, self-harming, suicide attempts, depression. Everything just came crashing down at that moment, and it was all for nothing. I quit right then and never ever stepped into a ballet studio again and I haven't to this day at 24 years old my mom stayed in bed for a month I remember counting calories at 10 years old tying a bathrobe around my waist so tight that I couldn't breathe to try to make my waist smaller pushing my chest against the ground to try and flatten (laughs) my boobs after I suddenly got double D's during puberty (laughs) and turning the bathtub on full blast to cover up the sounds of my vomiting at my dinner. I guess you could say that I was anorexic and bulimic starting at age 13 until about 20. I never sought official treatment other than the occasional therapy, and my extreme dieting was condoned by my mother as a job hazard and necessary to get where I needed to go. I never knew that I had an eating disorder until I was about 18. I thought that starving myself, looking at pictures of emaciated models for hours and hating myself was just a part of my life and career choice. And just let me say really quickly, uh, I love my mother. (laughs) She is an angel. I say these things and share these memories knowing that what she did, she always did out of love. And out of her own warped understanding from her own upbringing, she is a strong, creative woman whom I love very dearly. But I have learned that it is imperative to acknowledge the past if we want to move on. I have always been overtaken by the feeling that I was not good enough, something that I still struggle with today, as many of us do. I have never had a time in my life where I have not been trying to lose weight sometimes more successfully than others. My lowest weight was horribly low, so unhealthy and terrible. I had three broken bones and fractures because when you don't eat, your bones break. And even then, at my very lowest weight, I remember telling my mom that I thought I looked pregnant in my new white leotard. I wish I could go back and tell my 16-year-old self that this isn't worth it. The lie being sold to you that you will only be happy if you're thin is false. Stop doing this to yourself. But I can't. I can only learn from what happened to me. I am often regretful about abandoning my career as a ballet dancer. I could have easily went with another company I based my decision on one horrible, old-fashioned man. (laughs) I could have gone with a more contemporary form of dance where they are more accepting of 
more diverse body types or commercial dancing. But you really do need to let go or be dragged. If you cannot change it, you should not stress over it. My eating disorder was inextricably linked to ballet and my mom. So I thought that once I quit ballet and was spending less time with my mom, I would be okay. And I was very wrong. I never figured out why I hurt myself, why I did what I did. I never acknowledged how sick I was or how distorted my body image was. So all of those issues still followed me as I tried to live a normal life. My eating disorder and my depression were my comforts. They were familiar. It was all that I knew. I never knew how to eat normally, how to not count my calories and fat grams, how to enjoy food, why I shouldn't be binging and purging every other day, how to not feel guilty about having a cookie, how to see exercise as something beautiful and therapeutic and not as punishment. And it has taken me up until this past year to find some answers. I must say that the body positive movement has impacted me greatly. Let me end with who I am today. I am a 24-year-old woman who believes that all shapes and sizes are beautiful. There is so much more than what is on the surface. We were not put on this earth to try to fit into a size zero. We were put here to be ourselves and to bring our own unique talents and light to this world. There is an enormous power in positivity. I cannot say this enough. Your thoughts become reality. I know it sounds cheesy, but it is true. And you can thank my boyfriend for that advice. I laughed at him too. As far as recovery goes, I am not a doctor or a therapist. I can only say what I think and what I've experienced. But you have to decide to get better. You have to decide to let go of those comfortable, harmful behaviors. And you need help. You can try to do it alone, but from my experience, you will relapse. Professional help is essential, but building healthy relationships is so important. You always want to isolate yourself with an eating disorder and with other mental illnesses. Those people who care for you will help you stay on track. They will make you feel like a valid human and remind you that you are important and needed in this world. Surround yourself with positivity and work every day to let go of your old thoughts and actions. You will fail. I did. More times than I can count and I'm still failing today. And it's okay to have days when all you do is go to the bathroom and maybe get a snack. It's okay to curl up in your blankets and just hide for a while. It's okay. It's okay to feel what you feel. Just try not to stay there. Also, food is amazing. <laughs> it's so much fun. Such a bonding experience when you're with others. And you'll learn to love it again. You will learn to go clothes shopping without an emotional breakdown. It will take a couple tries, trust me. It's, it's taken me so long and sometimes I still have a rough time. But you will learn that there is nothing wrong with you. It's the clothes. It's a piece of fabric. Don't let it dictate how you feel about yourself. Beauty is arbitrary. It's societally constructed. And you get to define it for yourself. 
And if anyone else tries to, punch them. Okay, fine, don't punch them. Educate them. Educate them to question these traditions. Who said women, or men for that matter, have to look a certain way? Who made up these rules? You can, and you will let go of whatever is holding you back. It can be an eating disorder, addiction, bad habits, etc. But make no mistake, I do not believe I will be ever completely rid of my eating disorder. It will always be there, probably until I die, because it became a part of me and therefore is who I was. But it's not who I am anymore. You can acknowledge the past without living in it. Take care of yourself and love yourself because you are perfect the way God made you. And thank you for that, Mimi. It took a lot of courage to tell that story. I have a 12-year-old girl, and she's already looking at that mirror and wondering about her body image. Is she thin enough? Is she pretty enough? And this is just an occupational hazard of being a woman. It's also starting to affect young boys as we see more and more photoshops of men with their abs all over the place, and they're thin and they're losing weight. And it's just it's a disturbing trend in America, this self-starvation, and particularly the world of ballet which I got to experience a bit when my sister was young. And it is a brutal world. It looks beautiful on the outside. But the image comportment and having to look like that thin, thin swan is really, really tough. Mimi's story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 